Welcome to Multifamily Real Estate Investing, presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling. I am the founder and CEO of Mara Poling, and I am excited to be with you this week to talk about a topic that comes up very often in discussions with the families that we work with and with the folks inside our organization, and that is the foundation to achieving great returns. Exactly what does it take to earn great returns, to get a, an optimized cash-on-cash cash return, to see equity growth? What are the things that you need to do to actually be able to do that? That's what we're going to talk about this week. As always, if you have any questions, feel free to shoot me an email, pat at marapolling.com. And don't forget to swing by the Learning Center at marapolling.com, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com for lots of great educational content. Okay, so let's let's start with great returns, optimized returns, excellent returns, whatever adjective you want to use. The notion that we want to earn a total return that's in line with or better than what our plan was. And that's a cash return and it's equity growth. And yes, there are some tax advantages and all of that comes after we have the safety and security of the kind of multifamily investing that we like to do. So let's take that for granted, the safety and security component. What we want to talk about today is optimizing those returns, the cash on cash return, the equity growth. Little definition, right? We get cash from an asset and we divide that cash by the capital that we've invested in that asset in order to determine the kind of return that we are getting. So if we put a million dollars into an asset, we would expect to get $60,000, $70,000, $80,000 a year. $80,000 a year on a million-dollar investment is 8%. And if one year we got $60,000 and another year we got $80,000 and another year we got $100,000, well, we're averaging $80,000 over that three-year time frame. It's that cash on cash return. How much cash did we put in and how much cash are we getting back that is that cash return that we want to optimize. At the same time, one of the reasons we invest in real estate, in particular in multifamily real estate, is it grows in value. And as it grows in value, that increased value generates additional equity for us so that the million dollars I put in can grow in value by $100,000 every year. 100,000, another 100,000, another 100,000. Well, over those three years, my million has become a million three. I'm seeing a 30% return over the whole period. That's 10% on average added to my 8%. I'm at 18%. That's our target for our return profile for the assets that we invest in at Mora Polling. So how do I get those returns? Where do those returns come from? 
Well, there's a lot of factors that are involved. As I said, the capital investment is a component. So if you can affect a plan where you put less capital in than you planned on putting in, so maybe we're able to be more efficient with the capital improvements that we're doing, or we forego some capital improvements because we're able to achieve revenue growth without necessarily having to do the upgrades or as many upgrades. If that's the case, then I could invest less capital. And that's certainly one way to do it. But the biggest lever and really the bottom line way that you improve cash returns and equity growth is by improving net operating income. Net operating income, revenue comes in, expenses go out, we're left with net operating income. Now, the net operating income has to cover the debt service, and what's left is cash, and that's where cash return comes from. So if we want to increase our cash return, we could change the debt service, but it's really fixed from the get-go once we close on an asset. So how do we improve it over time? We move NOI. So that next tier in this four-tier plan is that NOI improves. So we drive NOI. And if you drive NOI, you not only get more cash, but it drives equity growth. If I move NOI, let's say that I can add $100,000 annually to my NOI. If I'm in a five cap market, I've just added $2 million in value to the asset that I've purchased. So I want to grow NOI, and that's the primary vehicle for how I improve my cash performance and how I generate equity growth. Well, NOI is comprised of a couple of different items. One of them is revenue. We'll talk about that in a minute. But what is operating expenses? Well, how do you manage operating expenses? How do you reduce them? Well, you don't. There may be an individual line item that can be reduced. For example, capital investment might be able to eliminate some repairs and maintenance expenses. We have an asset that we recently made a significant investment in replacing all the HVAC units. That was a capital investment, and it's going to be monetized in a number of ways. One of the ways is a reduction in repairs and maintenance, because we're not spending thousands of dollars a month during the summer fixing units that are broken, because now they're all brand new units. But generally speaking, operating expense management is about managing the growth of operating expense, not about actually reducing it. So operating expenses will grow every year. Can we grow operating expenses at a slower rate than we're growing revenue? If we can, that's going to drive NOI. Now, the other piece of NOI comes from revenue, from net rental income. So this is the third tier in this program. Net rental income is really where it's all about. If you want to drive NOI, Yes, you manage operating expenses, as we just discussed. What you really want to focus on is driving net rental income. And that means getting your rents up to the market level. And remember how we learn where the market level is? It's by listening to the market. 
if we're charging $1,000 a unit and everyone else in the market is charging $1,000 a unit, and yet all of us are very highly occupied, then the market's not really at $1,000. It's somewhere higher than that. And we need to continue to move those rents until the market speaks by saying, yeah, I'm not going to rent that unit from you. And when they do that, that's where we know that we've gotten to market. And maybe the market's $1,025, maybe it's $1,050, maybe it's $1,100. And every bit of that improvement in net rental income, because almost exclusively net rental income has no incremental expense, or if it does, it's very, very small. So 90 cents on the dollar, 95 cents on the dollar of every dollar of net rental income you grow falls all the way through to NOI and that drives cash and that drives equity growth. Get those rents to market. Invest in value add improvements. Improve the units with improvements that the market wants. So it's not going in and putting in gold-plated bathroom fixtures. My guess is very few tenants, if any, would actually pay more. Some might not rent from you because that's maybe a gaudy look. But doing things like vinyl plank flooring, new appliance packages, lighting, paint, cabinetry, those are all items that absolutely tenants like. And the reason we know they like them is they're willing to pay us for them. I'd include in that list having a washer dryer in the unit, probably one of the greatest value adds. Tenants love being able to do laundry in their unit and they're willing to pay for it. That's how we know that the market wants those improvements. Are people willing to pay us for it? And other income, because not all the improvements are made to the units. Can we offer other services like assigned parking or covered parking or valet trash services or internet services on a bulk basis that allow our tenants to have significantly lower costs and greater service. All of those items generate additional income and that helps drive our net rental income. Those are the items that are gonna move NOI and that's what's gonna move cash and that's what's gonna move equity but there's a price of admission and that's the fourth tier, which is actually the foundation of this entire program. So before you can get the cash and equity growth that you want, which comes from improvements in NOI, which is driven by net rental income, before you can do all those, we have to have a property that has healthy occupancy with qualified tenants. What do I mean by that? I mean, occupancy that's somewhere in the mid-90s, maybe down as low as 93 or so, and as high as 97 or so, and bad debt coming from delinquencies that's in the 1%, maybe 2% range. So let's look at each of those independently. Occupancy between 93 and 97. Why that range? 
Well, like one answer is that's how we underwrite them. A better answer is 97 is essentially full. Think about it. If we have 120 units in a property and we have 10 units that expire every month and half of those units stay, five, and they renew, and half of those people vacate, which is typical of what we might experience at an asset. Well, those five vacancies, even if we were able to lease those units to new tenants, and we even if we did that while there is still a tenant there, so in other words, I give my notice that I'm going to leave, I haven't moved out yet because that date hasn't arrived, and we're able to lease that unit to a new tenant, there still is a period of time in between one tenant leaving and the new tenant coming in. Some of that time is time we need in order to clean and prepare the unit. Some of that time might be for us to make improvements if that's a unit that's slated for improvements. And some of that time is the new tenant simply being in a position where they need to move in maybe in week three or week four. Well, if you add all those little pieces up, you get one or two or two and a half percent vacancy. So there is no such thing as being 100% vacant unless you have a property where nobody leaves and everyone renews. And if you have that, you are leaving huge amounts of cash on the table. That is the market screaming at you that you are way out of market relative to the economics of your property. So we think 97 is the upper limit of where you want to be from an occupancy standpoint. If you're at 97, that's the market saying you're a real value. You could do something in terms of moving rents and in doing so increase NRI, which increases NOI, which is what generates the cash on cash return and equity growth. So high occupancy is a sign of opportunity. Conversely, occupancy at 93, not a bad number. If you were to add one or 2% of bad debt, you'd be at 92% or 91, which generally is the neighborhood that we would underwrite an asset for. If you look historically at the performance of properties, we want to buy a property that historically is performing in that 90 to 92% range. If we're at 93%, that's still a reasonable number. It's also a number in which the market is saying, we like your property and we think your rents are actually pretty good. So I'm not going to be doing a lot with rents at 93 and I'm okay with that. That's a healthy place for me to be. If I can move to 94 or 95, I start having more opportunities to move rents because the market is saying, hey, we like your property better than we did at 93. At 96, at 97, I'm absolutely looking at moving rents. Now, that occupancy needs to be occupancy based on qualified tenants. And by that, we're talking about tenants that are capable economically, financially, of paying the rent on a consistent basis over the time of their lease. We do that for two reasons. It's important to us, and we think it's important to the tenant, that there be an economic fit. We would not want a tenant to sign a lease and become 
a tenant of ours, if in fact they're only a few months away from being in a position where they can't pay that rent. So for example, if we have a unit that rents for $1,000 a month, in some markets, property owners will require that tenant to make about $2,500 a month gross. So two and a half times the rent number. Well, think about that for a minute. Nobody brings home their gross income. There are taxes that are taken out, uh, even if it's just the Social Security tax and Medicare and maybe a state disability uh, payment. You know, you're, that's high single digits. You might be getting close to 10%. Throw in some federal and, and maybe state withholding, depending upon what state you're in. Add to that uh, any deductions for health care costs and other items. And you could see fairly quickly where that $2,500 might only be two grand, maybe even less. So now we have a tenant in a position where half or more of their take-home pay is going to cover rent. Any one event that might happen to that tenant, and obviously we don't want negative events to happen to folks, but life happens, right? So a car breaks down. Uh, somebody gets sick and there's a deductible that has to be paid to take care of that coverage. All of a sudden, that tenant doesn't have enough money to pay rent. That's not good for us. It's not good for the tenant. We don't want tenants to go through that. We want tenants to be very comfortable that when they sign a lease, they know they're going to be able to pay that rent over time. So we like three times. So that tenant wouldn't need $2,500 a month. They'd need $3,000, which does mean that a tenant that only makes $2,500 a month, and I don't want to say only as in that's a small number, that's $30,000 a year. But someone making $2,500 a month wouldn't qualify to rent an apartment that rented itself for $1,000 a month. Well, there are other apartments out there that are $800 a month or $900 a month that are good quality apartments that tenants can rent. We would be looking for someone that's in that $3,000 range, which means they're bringing home $2,500, $2,600 a month, maybe something like that. And that puts them in a position where there's a bigger cushion. Now their rent is only about 40%, maybe even a little less. And many tenants that we'll look to attract actually are going to earn more than that. They'll earn $3,200 a month, $3,500 a month, $4,000 a month. And now their take-home, the rent to take-home pay is now maybe 35% or even 30%, much more cushion. That allows us to be very confident that those tenants are going to be able to pay their rent. And it allows those tenants to be confident that they're going to be able to do that. The last thing in the world that tenant wants to do is to have the stress of not being able to pay their rent. And heaven forbid, the ultimate outcome being after a delinquency, an eviction. And we don't want to evict tenants. That's not good for us. If we are evicting a tenant, by definition, that means that's a tenant that hasn't been paying us rent. 
we want our tenants to pay us rent or we'd rather the unit was just vacant because I can then turn around and rent a vacant unit. The worst unit for us to have as investors is a unit that's occupied under lease, but the rent isn't being paid. It's delinquent. So we want to be in a position where our bad debt, our write-offs are around 1%, maybe up towards 2 it, it grew quite a bit during COVID, uh, 3 4% at some properties, which is amazingly low when you consider what happened during the COVID shutdown. And they've recovered. They've not fully recovered to the 1% level. So something under 2% would be a good number. So if we can have our occupancy in range, meaning in that 93 to 97% range, and do so with qualified tenants, not, not a bunch of tenants that aren't good fits, but tenants that are a good fit, so that our bad debt is 1%, one and a half, maybe somewhere just under two, then that's a healthy property. And that property is a property that we can look to move rents towards market, that we can make investments in value add, that we can offer other amenities to generate other income, which will increase our net rental income. As we increase our net rental income with a focus on managing the growth of operating expenses, we can move net operating income. And as net operating income grows, we're gonna see a higher cash on cash return and we're gonna experience equity growth that ultimately helps us achieve the targets that I laid out at the beginning of today's session. So those four tiers built upon that foundation of occupancy in range with qualified tenants is how you go about getting great returns. Often we see folks that will get the cart before the horse, that there's a great deal of focus on how can I move that cash number? And there's a lot of focus on NOI and NOI without the understanding that NOI comes from net rental income and that net rental income actually comes from a healthy foundation of occupancy and qualification of tenants. If you have any questions about this week's content, please reach out to me, pat at marapolling.com. And I'd love to have you join us again next week for another episode of multifamily real estate investing presented by Mara Polo.